Um, at Access, uh, as Joel mentioned, I am now serving in a part-time role as Minister of the Word. Um, I had the privilege of preaching at Portland Covenant um, almost three years ago because I was pregnant with our youngest, um, our daughter, Lydia. So it's good to be back with you all um, this morning. A little bit about who I am. Um, so I am a woman, I identify as um, an Asian American woman and I do that as a political choice. Um, I am a mixed race person, the daughter of a um, Korean adoptee um, and a white woman from whose family has been in the States for a long time. And so I live um, in the midst of those those two identities um, and navigate that as also someone, though, who often um, is perceived to be white. Right. Depending on the space, the space that I'm in. So that's something um, a lane that I know I'm in as well. I'm the partner um, of a really fabulous uh, man named Ben, who's currently hanging out with our kids so that they're not knocking on the walls or playing the piano while I preach. Um, and together we are parenting um, three kids, uh, two sons and a daughter. Um, we live in Southeast Portland. I also do work um, coaching women on their leadership journeys, um, as well as doing some diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting, um, where I get to work with some fabulous women of color who own um, several different firms around Portland. And I just get the fun of doing work for and with them. And it is great. It's one of the joys of my life. Um, this morning, as we get started, um, I want to give us, before uh, we dive into the scripture um, and look at, uh, try to unpack John 12, I want to give a framework for what we're going to talk about this morning, because I realize there's some dynamics at play um, that actually subvert some of what we're used to when we hear sermons um, given, particularly sermons that are going to uh, hone in on something related to gender dynamics. So first of all, I just want to name um, the women whose thinking and scholarship and living is influencing my own thinking as a human navigating the world. Um, so I think about women like Will Gaffney, a womanist scholar and theologian um, who's teaching me to center the experience of women in the Jewish narrative and the experience of experiences of black women in our American context. Um, I think of Angela Davis, the scholar activist in the black radical tradition whose words, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. I think about those words when I approach scripture, not because I'm out to change scripture, but I'm asking the spirit to unshackle the scriptures um, from the chains and the limited view that white evangelical uh, spirituality, um, the white evangelical spirituality that I was steeped in. I think of Kathy Park Hong, fellow Korean American who is a poet and an academic whose uh, memoir, Minor Feelings, have stoked what I am referring to as an ancestral ember in my soul as I continue to grow in my understanding of what it means to claim an Asian American identity. And I am indebted to Liz Plank, a queer white Canadian journalist whose book For the Love of Men has illuminated some things missing for me in our conversations about gender and power. Both, uh, she, she writes outside the church, but I applied it inside the church. Um, and as I was writing the sermon, it felt like I was simply allowing what I'd read in her book to dialogue with my experience and with the text. And I was asking the Lord, to, asking the Lord, what do you want to say out of this? So I'm indebted to these women. I also want to name that what I will say this morning is not meant to land with everyone in the same way. There's no way that it will. Um, I have spent most of my life digesting sermons preached by men where their experiences are often universalized, assumed to apply to everyone in the same way. I have been asked to preach as a woman out of my experience um, primarily, sometimes I think it's because we hope the women in a, in a crowd will feel heard and seen. 
but I have not experienced a lot of sermons where a woman is invited to preach something that may specifically apply to those who identify as men in the group, right? I've listened to the sermons where men feel very confident about saying things to women, right? Giving specific instructions about how we dress, how we act, how we exist, but I have not had the pleasure of the opposite. So what I mean to say by that and giving that framework is that what I think could happen Right. For some um, of the men in this group, you are not used to hearing the words I'm going to say um, from someone who looks or sounds or exists as me. And what that could do is it could uh, evoke defensiveness in you. You may want to take what I hear and push it away or say, well, Andrew is kind of an angry person. So I'm just going to put that in a different box and I can discount it. And I want to claim that, yes, I am angry because I believe the women in God's family and in the, wor- in the world have reason to be angry. But my anger is not to shame. My anger is not to demean. My anger is to speak truth because I believe truth is the most loving gift that we can offer one another. Um, and if you are courageous enough to receive this, I think that you will follow in the way of Jesus and you yourselves, men among us, will experience liberation that actually all of us need. In the same way that white supremacy deforms and distorts the identity, not just of those who are pressed under its knee, people of color, it distorts the identities of white folk. Toxic masculinity in our world, in our churches, in how we unpack scripture, distorts the identity of men as much as it oppresses women. So there is work for you all to do to unpack that. I think about this. Um, oh, one more thing I want to say in terms of a framework. So, um, men, I want to invite you, if you identify as a man, and again, I, I'm not going to get into the spectrum of gender identity or how we might identify. I just want to say, if you identify as a man in this space, um, then you may experience feelings of discomfort, guilt, shame by some of the things I say. And what I would invite you to do is to welcome those feelings, not because the Lord invites you to wallow in them, but because they're trying to tell you something. And I invite you humbly to pay attention to what your feelings are trying to tell you. And then I'm going to invite you to find spaces to process those, not with me, not even necessarily with other women in your life, but with other men in your communities. Um, There are statistics about the fact that men, and I know this breaks down by race because of systemic uh, oppression and injustice and racism as well. I'm not getting into that this morning, but in general, men overall have lower life expectancies than women. Um, And psychologists look at that and say it's actually because of the lack of intimate connection with other men. Um, And some of the things I'm going to talk about today are the way toxic uh, masculinity uh, influences that. So I come at this again as a partner, as someone who loves um, a man very deeply, who is trying to raise uh, two boys to be good uh, men in the world. Um, But what I've noticed as a parent is that... um, You know, when babies, when my babies were first born, there's not a lot that's different about them, right? They have some different parts, but they basically need to be fed. They need to be changed. They need to be held. Um, But already from a young age, there were symbols that were offered to my children that made their gender very distinct and told a story about what their gender was supposed to, uh, how they were supposed to live that out. So for instance, when my oldest was born, he was gifted a miniature baseball bat. This is a Louisville Slugger with his name imprinted on it. It is adorable, frankly, right? I like miniature things. This is adorable. Um, 
my daughter was given very plush and pink and soft stuffies. Now, to be fair, my sons were given adorable soft plushies as well, but my daughter was not given a baseball bat, right? There were some distinctions about what was viewed as appropriate. Um, and I notice in my parenting that I've taken extra uh, attention to make sure that Lydia sees a version of herself that defies barriers, right? Lydia can be an engineer if she wants to be. Lydia can uh, be a mom if she wants to be. Lydia can be whatever she wants to be. And as much as I want to say I've put that same intention towards my sons, the truth is I haven't because I haven't invited them to read a book that says, boys, you can be a nurse, Boys, you could stay at home with your children. Boys, you could be a teacher, right? There are, there are still ways that we, um, we give, we are uh, intentional about letting our girls see pictures of themselves that defy boundaries. Um, and that has happened so much really in the last 50 years in this country. But what has simultaneously been missing is a conversation for men about the boundaries that they are put in as well and an invitation to step out of some of those um some of those norms not asking them to not be men but to say you have a limited lane that you are invited to stay in regarding how you see yourself in the world regarding what you do with your emotions and friends um we have all inherited those scripts and we play them out largely from an unconscious place and the problem is that without interrogating those scripts uh, we see them playing out in the most violent and toxic ways, right? We have named those multiple times in this gathering. Um, the shooting of um, eight people in Atlanta spas, predominantly six of the victims, right? Asian American women. Uh, the shooting at a grocery store last Sunday in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, the murder of citizens by soldiers in Myanmar led by an oppressive reg regime that is afraid of its people. But what has not been named is that that violence must be located specifically because it's not everyone who is committing those acts of violence. It is not universal that people pick up guns and shoot their neighbors. It is predominantly men who take up arms and kill, right? In many of the mass shootings we see in this country, it is predominantly white men who take up guns and kill. It is men who have the highest rates of dying, um, from gun violence by their own self-inflicted wounds. We have a problem and we need to be specific about where it is located and how it plays out in the world. So according, uh, according to verywellmind.com, which it's on the internet, so it, it, hopefully it offers something good. Uh, let me give a definition of toxic masculinity and then I promise we're gonna get into scripture because I promise there is good news coming. Toxic masculinity is characterized by cultural pressure that encourages men to behave in very specific, limited ways, and then that men themselves become the police enforcing these norms upon one another. So all, ben and sorry, all boys and men are impacted by it to some extent. This cuts across culture, socioeconomic categories. Again, we could get into the distinctions of that, but I won't today. I'm going to entrust that to you to do the work to contextualize how this plays out in your life and your community. But it can be summarized as manliness being limited to themes of domination, 
aggression, homophobia, misogyny, and the suppression of emotions behind a tough, hard shell, right? Men are the rocks. Men are steady. Um, it has serious mental and relational health consequences for men as well as all people. And as we're seeing it, it has deadly consequences for society, right? Um, and the deadliest of those consequences fall on the most vulnerable amongst us. And let us not be naive, friends. Uh, if this impacts all men and boys, then it's not just the most extreme expressions of this toxicity that are damaging. As far as I'm aware, none of the men or boys present today have opened fire in a grocery store, right? None of you have committed murder in response to your bad day. And yet I can almost guarantee, I would be willing to put money on the line that there, if with a little bit of self-reflection, you would be able to make connections to the ways these narrow definitions of manliness have shaped you and influenced you in spite of yourself, right? And if you were willing to take the risk to ask your friends, your coworkers, your romantic partners past and present, and for those of you who have children, your children, they would be able to give you some insight about how this manifests in your life if you were willing to ask them and listen to their responses. So that is the bad news. The good news that I see in our text today is that what happens this morning is that Jesus continues his work that includes interrupting this toxic thread of masculinity in his own context and that he demonstrates an alternative, alternative with his actions. So let's talk about, let's talk about John 12. Jesus quotes, uh, or John quotes two Old Testament passages in this text. The first is Psalm 118. You can look it up later, but let me uh, summarize some of the themes. Uh, repeated themes around God's love, his particular love towards the people of Israel, the way God's love endures forever, and that the Lord will save Israel even though it looks like defeat. God will get the victory. God will save. God's love endures forever. And this fits with the crowd's cries of Hosanna, Hosanna. We sang that earlier, right? Simply translated, it means save us, right? Save us, O Lord. The second scripture that John quotes is out of Zechariah 9, a prophetic Old Testament passage uh, that, is, that is viewed as, be, as referring to this coming Savior, this Messiah. And again, it declares that God will free God's people from their oppressors, specifically other oppressive nations that surround the people of Israel. And that after they are defeated, these, these enemies, Israel's king will show up not on a war horse, but on a young donkey, declaring peace to the ends of the earth. And this image of a king, of a ruler coming on a donkey is jarring because it does not communicate aggression or a desire to dominate, right? Uh, and yet, because it comes in the context of a passage in Zechariah that talks about God defeating God's enemies, it would make sense for the audience to hear this and expect some kind of flashy, violent overthrow, right? Like, that's part of the story. And we see that this is not unique, right, to the Jewish scriptures. I want to be careful to say that clearly. That's the story that we see, right, of monarchies throughout history, right, in many parts of the world. Um, 
An additional contemporary lens that the audience might have in their minds would be uh, understood through the, the images of Roman emperors parading through the streets of Rome after a significant military conquest. Uh, I'm going to be honest, my only reference for that is the HBO series Rome. Some of you may judge me for having watched that. So I can't vouch for the historical liberties taken. Um, but let me just say that uh, the visual images of ancient Rome draped in rich reds and gold while Caesar and his general march in full military regalia, plumes, feathers, right? Way more imposing than this picture of Jesus on a solitary donkey ride through the gates of Jerusalem, right? Sharp contrast. The second thing we have to see to understand this passage is that to know, uh, to be a Jewish person, I heard um, uh, a Jewish woman on uh, my friend Brandy's podcast this week say that, that ultimately to be a Jewish person is to know you are part of a story and to live that story, to know that story in your bones, right? It's in your blood. And part of that story involves Israel's story of desiring a monarch. This scene cannot help but evoke that for me. For the story of the start of Jew, uh, the Jewish monarchy, uh, it begins under interesting circumstances, and we find that uh, in the text of 1 Samuel 8. But again, here's a summary. You can look that up later. The summaries that we're told that uh, the people up to that point, the Jewish people, have been led by judges and prophets, including women. Uh, but they come to Samuel, the prophet of that day, and say, we're actually really interested in a king. Right, we've kind of had enough of this uh, judge thing, prophet thing. You have been fine, but we're tired of being different from the people around us. We just want a system just like they all have. They want to be led by a king. And Samuel says, right, as God speaking, Samuel says, well, first of all, I'm gonna name your lack of faith by asking for this thing because God, God's self said, I will be a king and that's all you need. And the people said, well, we're kind of tired of that. Um. And God says, I invited you to be different, but because you're asking for this, um, all right, we're going to set up, we're going to set up a monarchy. And spoiler alert, what follows in this line of kings is a hotbed of patriarchal toxic masculinity. And another spoiler alert, again, it's not unique to this context. It's just what played out in every kingdom around them and what still plays out among powerful men in the world today. Let me list some of the things that we see present in Israel's monarchy. Homophobia, rape, murder, incest, greed, power hoarding, betrayal, and war after war after war. Now Jesus shows up in this line, right? And is viewed as the king. But what I love about what I see Jesus doing in addition to disrupting that by not showing up on a war horse, not saying I'm here to smoke my enemies, is that Jesus is very, uh, the way he positions his body on a donkey communicates a different kind of story, right? A different kind of leadership. And this is not the first time that Jesus had do has done this, right? Throughout Jesus's ministry and leading up to this entry, Jesus has done the following. Let me summarize, and I hope you hear the sharp contrast with what we just talked about was part of Israel's history. Jesus has gone out of his way to develop deep friendship with other men, intimacy. Jesus has related to women as co-conspirators. Uh, there are moments in scripture, and you could look these up, right? I think of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, which is often preached as this text where, 
oh, Jesus is testing this woman and Jesus is teaching his disciples a lesson about misogyny, right, and, and uh, racism. I read it as Jesus receives correction from a foreign woman, right? Jesus rejects greed, calling on those who are greedy to radical repentance and redistribution of their wealth. Jesus lives nonviolently. He's not aggressive or domineering to those, toward those with less power in his world. Jesus goes out of his way to share power. Jesus restores life rather than taking it. And Jesus is not a participant or complicit in sexual exploitation of any kind. Jesus lives as though he is not weighed down or tied or invested in the gendered baggage or expectations of his role as a teacher, as a rabbi in this world. And I don't think the point that we're supposed to take from that is that he's able to do so simply because he's the son of God and he's divine. I think that lets men among us off the hook. Right? I think Jesus does what he does because he's shaped by grown-ups in his life that chose a different way. I could preach an entire sermon on the way Joseph, his father, disrupts toxic masculinity, but I don't have time for that this morning. But that is its own sermon, right? I think the point we're supposed to take is that he's more fully human as a result of choosing to live this way and defying the masculine gender norms of his day. He refuses to settle into a version of maleness that is driven by fear, insecurity and leads to a distortion of his humanity, both of himself and others. He rejects that and by doing so, he proves with his lived actions that another way is possible. And friends, this is before he liberates on the cross. I need us to understand that. This comes before that. This is what he's living. Jesus riding on a donkey was the most common mode of transportation for the poor in his community. So it's striking for multiple reasons. The last one that I will share is that it stands out to me and I think it should stand out to us because it reminds me so much of his mother's journey. It is traditionally assumed that in the final days of her pregnancy, Mary rides on a donkey for the 90 mile journey between Nazareth and Bethlehem. Fun fact, this is not directly mentioned in Luke's or Matthew's recounting of uh, the nativity story. However, it is seen in almost every depiction that you see of this couple's journey, right? This, this pilgrimage to Bethlehem to be counted. Um, I believe that a donkey was involved because they were poor and because as a woman who has carried three humans in my body, I can tell you that no one in their last days of pregnancy, no woman is walking 90 miles. So uh, three years ago uh, in April 2018, when I was eight months pregnant with Lydia, we went to Washington DC, Ben and I. It was our first vacation away from our kids. We'd planned this before we knew I was going to have a baby. Uh, we thought about canceling it, but we're like, no. We, uh, the, the National Museum of American uh, African American History and Culture had just opened and I was determined to do my own pilgrimage to that space. So I said, no, we're going. Got the special note from my doctor to get on the plane. Um, but what I will tell you is that uh, the National Mall is about two miles long and our uh, Airbnb where we stayed was another two miles from the Capitol building, which is like the top of the mall. So to get to that museum, because we were too cheap to take the lift, 
uh, we walked. So I walked two miles from the Airbnb to the US Capitol building and then walked another mile and a half to get to the museum. And I will tell you that I had to stop at every bench within a quarter mile down that mall to take a break because I was so tired. Um, now, frankly, I was not in the best physical shape of my life in that moment, but I don't care if Mary was running half marathons at six months pregnant. There's no way she's walking uh, from, Beth from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So the symbol, right, the riding on this donkey that Jesus's entry in Jerusalem puts on display for everyone, um, it mirrors the journey of his mother, right? A poor, illiterate teenage mom living under the oppressive knee of the Roman Empire. He shows solidarity with her. He models his, his, his entrance off of the journey that she took um, to the place where her own blood would spill so that new life would be brought forth. Right? This moment of triumph is as much about her as it is about any man with the same assigned gender in Israel's list of kings. He chooses to embody a particular part of the story, and it's her story. And in doing so, he rejects the narrow definition of masculinity that echoes across so many cultural expressions. He says no to aggression, to domination, to emotion, emotional repression. And by doing so, he demonstrates strength, courage, and a clear sense of his own identity. As I was thinking about who do I see in my world who is doing some of this work? Um, to be honest, the first person who came to mind was not someone in a Christian circle. Um, to compensate for my need to watch very um, intense PBS documentaries for fun, I also enjoy stand-up comedy, the uh, extreme, right? Although in some ways, I think comics let us into some very real gendered and racial realities, right? But they do it um, through the resistance of humor. Um, I recently read Ali Wong's memoir. Ali Wong is a groundbreaking Asian-American female comedian. Um, but I'm going to be honest, some of you are going to Google her afterwards and you're going to be scandalized. So I'm just warning you, right? She does not fit into a neat, tidy um, category. So I'm going to put that out there. But it, at the end of her memoir, her husband writes the afterword. Her memoir is written as letters to their two daughters. And the afterword is written by her husband, um, a man named Justin Hakuda, half Japanese, half Filipino, um, who left his successful career to become the primary caretaker for their two young daughters. And when I say successful, I mean a multi-million dollar startup. Um, Justin is the son of a Japanese um, immigrant who gained some notoriety in the 80s, his father uh, for developing a toy that apparently was a huge, huge hit, um, and a Filipino immigrant mother. Um, and in his letter to their daughters, right, when he says, why did I do this? Why did I leave my job to travel with you and your mom around the country to support her work and to sell t-shirts and posters at her merch table? Why did I make that choice? He says, well, I was just doing what your Lola did. I'm just doing what your grandmother did. Your grandmother gave up her career to be there for our family because my dad was famous and was more successful. And girls, your mom is more successful than I am. I didn't need to work, but someone needed to be the stabilizing, caretaking force in our family. So it is my honor to do what I saw your grandmother do and step into that role for you girls. And that process, he's very honest about it, made him interrogate all of the messages that he had internalized about what it means to be a man, provider, success tied to income, right? 
to be intimidated by strong and powerful women. That is not the only way that that can play out. So I don't give that as the only option. I just say, where are our examples of that? Man, where are you choosing to do that in your communities, right? Where are you saying, um, it's not enough for me to share power with another woman. I will actually give it up and do something different. I will defy norms. He gets it. Justin Hakuta gets it. And he expresses it with so much love and fulfillment by walking a path that most men, right, might pity him for feeling like he had to do. He does it with joy and with love, my friends. And he invites other men to do that deeper interrogation and says, there's so much freedom. There's so much freedom, my friends, waiting on the other side of that. So here's what I want us to hear today. If you are someone who identifies as a woman, what I hope you heard from this morning is that you feel seen and heard that some of the things you've experienced um, and seen and noticed from men in your life, you're not crazy, right? You are seeing something that is real and it's a problem. What I hope you hear is that Jesus in his final days continues to identify with women by identifying with his mother. He rejects the privileges of masculinity as it's, as it's defined in his context. And he models with his final steps um, the gratitude and the way his mother shaped and formed him. He demonstrates that it is possible for men to do this, not just as a mental or theoretical exercise, but as a lived experience that he allows his body to go through. Women, women identifying friends, you do not have to settle for interactions with men who have not chosen to do that same level of work for themselves because Jesus proves he's 100% capable and that men can do that if they will have the courage to do it. Men, what do I want you to hear? Well, on one level, I want you to hear that there's no excuses because of what Jesus has done. You do not get to hide behind a sense that what can be done, right? We must wait for the Lord to make this world right before we can do this work. No, your invitation is to do your own internal work to interrogate those scripts because you will be better equipped um, to navigate this world in more just and liberative ways for all people and frankly, for yourself, for yourselves. You don't have to suffer inside the armor that you've erected to protect how vulnerable you are. And the roadmap for how to do that is not a mystery because Jesus offers you a guide. This very Jesus who embraced so much about his mother's story and identity, this Jesus who chose deep, vulnerable friendship with other men, this Jesus who said, I don't have to dominate. I don't have to be aggressive. I don't have to be the leader at the top of the hierarchy all the time. That same Jesus gives you a way to unpack those scripts. Um, so this morning, um, I'm going to leave us with some questions, right? As we step into breakout rooms, what I invite you to say is it's okay if you don't know what to say in response to this yet, right? Some of us will have things to say. Some of us need space to process. Some of us need to take the risk to uh, men among us to gather with other men and talk about the places where you feel vulnerable, where you have let these scripts um, dominate you right? Dominate your sense of who you can be in the world and limit your imaginations of what is possible. Um, but what I want to pray um, to close, there's an image in the um, in the movie Moana, and I, I go back to this all the time, right? I feel like Moana is spiritual food for us all to, uh, to think about. But at the end, when Moana is confronting this like lava monster, um, what happens is that instead of vanquishing the monster, right, instead of killing the monster, instead of saying, right, like, I'm here to conquer you, 
Moana looks and says, oh, you're actually this person, you're this creature, you're part of creation and your identity has been distorted and you're so angry about that and you don't know what to do and so you keep shoving this anger outward, right? Do you hear the echoes of how that story plays out in the world? Men who are angry and suffering and shove, right? And make their anger land, externalize it in deadly ways. And Moana says is that that distortion needs to be healed. You need to remember who you actually are. I would say to you, you need to remember who God has made you to be, right? Not this toxic script, not the ways that subtly plays out in Christian community. So let me pray for us, right? We sang a song at the beginning. Our song was playing as we came in that says, um, how long? When will the daughters of Zion rejoice? And I'm here to say that the daughters of Zion will rejoice when the men among us begin to do that deep, courageous, transforming work to imagine something different in your lives, in your leadership, um, and in the world. Let me pray. God, um, Thank you that when you made creation, thank you that the words that you speak over creation are that creation is good. I pray that every single person who heard these words out of scripture and out of my mouth this morning would rest and be anchored in a sense of goodness that is core, core to our identities, right? And it would be out of that that we would be willing to challenge um, the scripts that we've inherited that do not serve us and do not serve the world around us, the neighbors that we want to love, the people that we want deep relationship with. Jesus, thank you that you give a model with your life, that you give a model of what it means um, to be liberated from the chains um, of a narrowly constructed um, gender identity um, that actually cause suffering for those bound by it and those um, that they kind of uh, just spew their their anger about that, that um, constriction. So Jesus, would you open up um, imagination um, for the communities of Access Covenant Church and Portland Covenant Church, um, both among men and women and all gender identities uh, along the spectrum, to imagine scripts, to follow you in rewriting scripts that are more liberative and bring life and wholeness um, to ourselves, um, to our households, to our neighborhoods, to the communities and to the world where you've placed us. We ask this in your name, amen.